0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.
1: Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on SustainableLens.org and on oar.org.nz.
2: Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio. Regeneration on radio seems like a good thing to be doing on New Year's Eve. It is a celebration of regeneration of the new year. I am Samuel Mann and this is... Henry. Henry Eden Mann and we're back interviewing the computer. We're, We're not interviewing the computer, we're using the computer to delve around in the Sustainable Lens archive. Last week we used the conversation function um and today we thought we would just stick on one topic we just thought we would stick on celebration let's see who we've got in the box for celebration
3: kind of you can you can access the natural world in so many different ways and not only be a filmmaker but you can be um media is now reaching into so many parts of society you'll you know there are jobs but you've got to look i mean the graduate one of the sarah Cowie, an irish graduate who came, went through that school what she's doing at the moment is her friend and her are going around the world making short films about bicycle cultures in cities around the world and they're calling it the millionth or billionth bicycle and they are wanting to get the stories out there so that cities like, you know, Rio or um, Beijing—no, not Beijing—that's got a great cycle culture. So it's it's celebrating the the cities with the great cultures and showing it to cities that don't have a great culture to say this is what this is what the world can be doing. Mm. Don't be afraid, it's not, going to, it's not going to make your city die, it's actually going to enliven your city. So that's a graduate from Otago, but they're all over the place. And that what I would do if I was, I would, I would go and I would research some of the graduates and what they're doing, and I mean, that would be easy to do. And I haven't caught up with Ross and the team down there for a while to find out, you know, where everyone is. But they'd be everywhere, in every continent.
2: You've said several times words the fact of follow the passion, what drives you?
3: Um, I'm a storyteller. Um, always had an interest in the outdoors. As I said, I started out doing veterinary science. Um, uh, I came down here and discovered another world that I knew very little about—the natural world of New Zealand. And you know, and I was, you know, a page ahead, be like one of those teachers who was a page ahead of the students for a while. But I caught up. But it felt. I felt honoured and proud to be part of telling these stories, untold stories, to my own country. And then that developed, and we started telling those stories to the world. And then we kind of, kind of run out of New Zealand stories, so we had to reach out into the world to tell stories to the world. you know. But um, And that never ceases. I mean, I'll always have that interest. At the moment, I'm working with the bug man, um, Rude Kleinpaster, and we're just... Um, we're working on a series um, uh, for a company in Singapore, actually, about children. Another kids series, kids wildlife series, where kids go into urban environments where you think all the animals and plants have gone. But using spy camera techniques, we find out there's vermin around, but there's also these treasures, these wonderful species that we thought weren't there, are hanging in there, you know. And this is in parts of Asia where we're going to be, so that's going to be really challenging
2: to do. That is Peter Hayden, Dunedin's Peter Hayden, uh, talking initially about graduates of the Masters of Science Communication and then about making films around the world. Uh, Let's go around the world to Melbourne with Dominic Hess.
0: We have come from a way of thinking. So when I was talking about shifting from the flat Earth to the round Earth, The flat earth thinking, um, that I see it as the moment, the the bit that we're transitioning from right now is this idea that we can control, manage, um, understand everything. So this real rationalist and empirical kind of way of thinking about the world and that plants and animals and nature all function like machines and therefore we can design machines to fix it. We can design technology to fix it. I think what we're shifting towards is we see... Um, that there is a contribution that we have as humans beyond the bits of a mach- that make up a machine that does stuff with, for us. Um, there's a creativity, there's a celebration, there's the concept of love and intuition. There are all those things that are way beyond what you can put, um, as far as I understand to date, uh, in a machine. And, and it's those, that, that creativity, that innovation, that intuition that helps solve problems. I've had this conversation about driverless cars, and I'm not an expert about driverless cars, but the problem I have with driverless cars and any machine that I know of is that it doesn't know how to break the rules. And sometimes you have to jump on a curve to miss a child, or you have to make decisions with a whole bunch of complex, immediate information that is more uh, fight-flight, intuitive-based reactions um, what Michelle calls the quantum story, how we connect two things without necessarily verbalising them and so forth, that is way beyond what I understand technology could, could possibly provide. And so I think by focusing on, and often we de- design technology not for itself, but to solve a problem. So
2: and from Melbourne, let's go to Minnesota Valentine Cadu
4: fun was to take the people who were already eager to do this and to help provide them with there's so much existing curriculum and so many resources in the world so you know, you'd get one person in a program who'd say oh you know so this ethics course or the criminal justice course would be great examples where people said I don't see what this has to do with sustainability and the criminal justice one was great because we worked with them for a few years running and like, well, so we do a course, we have a number of courses that take place with incarcerated people. So there'll be twelve students from Hamlin and twelve students within the prison. It's called the Inside Out program. It happens at a lot of different schools. And they're like, Well, we carpool, we we, we bring a van when we go there. And I celebrate their fuel efficiency, but I was trying to explain that from a societal standpoint, you know, when we think about the social side. Addressing and de you know, destigmatizing the the experience of being imprisoned and rehumanizing, especially to students who haven't had experience with incarceration, making these connections. and like like these social pieces of sustainability dwarf the carpooling. So those were really fun because they were projects that people already had started so they were embedded and they were willing to to kind of stand up and explain it again and again to their peers and then to be able to almost come in I feel like a lot of what sustainability work is that people may not realize is validating what people are doing putting it in a, a context where they can see why it matters and so much had been Sort of owned, and I put owned in quotes here, by the environment that this huge, I mean, they ended up creating a five-year focus for a center for justice and law that launched soon after the sustainability program of ending mass incarceration. So then to be able to have that as one of our flagship sustainability issues really was a nice turning point to say this, this matters in a completely different way than recycling your pop can. And then What was an interesting challenge for me and remains so is the faculty and the students quickly dug in their heels that they didn't want to put more investments, like they weren't going to be compliant with our sustainability reporting or they weren't going to share what they were doing if we didn't make better progress on some of the operations side stuff. So my job was very explicitly curriculum and not operations. But the curriculum people quickly said, we can't teach this if we don't have the operational side as well. And the operational side people were extremely interested in sustainability, but very fearful about whether it could be afforded or not. So,
2: Have they made the link between criminal justice and environmental justice?
4: I think increasingly that this, this is something that, that we've been working on, especially we've really been building our public health domain and so we do a lot of environmental justice work there and that makes the linkage much clearer for people. So to be able this is why I was excited about lakes and stress because there's great measures of the way that urban heat island effect drives increased crime. So if you can say well living in this kind of environment or being exposed to lead in these kinds of ways play into the likelihood of incarceration or of, of negative law enforcement encounters, that makes sense to people very quickly we have such good it's a kind of magic it's a kind of
5: magic a kind of magic one dream one soul one prize one goal one golden glance of what should be
2: talking about her experiences at Hamelin University and celebrating things? Let's see what Ginty McTavish had to say when we talked to her um, six or seven years ago now.
6: The, the forest, it was nothing more than lines on a map, you know. Um, yeah, and the forestry road. But it was beautiful. It was incredible. Were you camping? No, we stayed in, um, in pensions, which are like, guest houses, I suppose, the whole way along. Um, Yeah, I jumped from little city or um, large town to large town and had lunch where we felt like it and enjoyed the summer.
2: And from there to Paris?
6: Yeah, yeah, Paris was um, pretty incredible. I, I think what struck me about the whole of France, the thing that I loved about France was the local food culture. You know, they really know... The value of embracing local food and and celebrating it and making it part of what they offer and their brand. So, um, you know, you go to a, a a village in the south of France and you'll be drinking local wine that was grown five kilometres away and you'll be eating local cheese and local sausage and local bread and all of it is incredible and tasty and so rich in heritage and culture, you really feel like you're part of that place. And, you know, we could be doing that here. Is that
2: regulated or by choice?
6: A bit of both. A bit of both. Um, you know, they, there are these EU rules around uh, subsidies and I, I don't pretend to understand <laughs> how they all play out, but um you certainly get the sense that Farmers are supported to be doing local production in a way that they are simply not supported here. Yeah, but you know we we have all the we have all the right ingredients here in, in Dunedin. For that we have this incredible hinterland where, we, we, you know, we, we we're the biggest city in New Zealand outside of Auckland by by land area. So we've got amazing rural hinterland which grows produce which is exported. We've got this fantastic coastline which is abundant in it, in terms of its marine life. We've got you know as much as we moan about the weather sometimes really pretty primo growing conditions for things like grapes and and even horticulture and you know even my garden in the middle of winter it's not too bad. <laughs> So I think that we need to get a whole lot smarter about selling that part of what we can offer as a city and and embracing it. Because, again, it's one of those things that has multiple benefits, doesn't it? Local food reduces our carbon emissions and promotes economic development. Who would have thought?
2: (laughs) Jinty McTavish, who has promised to come back and talk to us in the new year, which happens real soon. Not that she's coming back real soon, but the new year happens real
7: soon. Um, that taught, uh, that was able to inspire and um, and and power businesses around technology and how to, you know, bring it into their business. And so therein lies uh, Innovate She was born. So that was 2015, and it was basically, um, I got home one night really... I guess despondent from a from a forum that I'd been in and I thought I've got to make a change here I want to I want to do something what is it and it was basically hey let's build this thing this hub and I'll be honest I was I had no idea what I was getting myself into it was a five-year plan so that was 2015 we opened October of 2016 so four years ahead of schedule um and what a ride (laughs) we celebrated our first birthday last October Um, I guess as far as you know being really fortunate my brother Steve who's the co-owner and was the financier he was the one that backed me and uh, in 2015 when this was just a dream and a theory he said look sis I like it do you want to do you want to do this I'll give you the money and I went Huh? <laughs> the moment of truth is like, oh, shut. <laughs> that means I've actually got to do it. So I did and um, spent basically the year prior to um, opening, you know, talking to our communities of, and all walks of life and also um, – what I did see as well was trying to bridge the gap between our educational institutes and the commercial reality. So having a space in an entrepreneurial space like Innovate HQ was really, its it's been awesome. Transitional pathways, we work with youth, we work with Sam's, um, uh, Sam's son as well in the youth entrepreneurship and just incredible. And then obviously a lot of the students from the Polytech and the university now use us. So it's, it gives them the ability that once they've finished um, school or uni, Polly, there's now, I guess, another way that they can go and exercise what they want to be when they grow up. So having a space like um, like we have down at uh, Innovate HQ is, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I never have a bad day in the office.
2: Heidi Renata there talking about Innovate HQ. That was fun, wasn't it? Mm, You did some work with them. Yeah, I liked that. Let's see what Ron Ball has to celebrate.
8: Growing up in Invercargill. Um, now, for those listeners that don't know, Invercargill is, um, you know, is, is is further down south from where we are in Dunedin. And um, how, how would we describe? Oh, I don't want to be too rude about Invercargill, but it's one of the last bastions perhaps of uh, of, of white middle class privilege.
9: Yeah, it's a bit, a bit whiter than everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, a, I mean it's quite a nice place, but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
8: And, and don't get me wrong, it's cold. I, I, I love the place. I love the place, uh, but. I remember my mother uh, growing up being, you know, living on our and, and understanding who we are and our connection to place and to people and to identity of, of who we were. I remember in 1977, when I was 10 years old, my mother and my auntie, um, on Waitangi Day, in one of the first celebrations, they decided they would sit in the, in the front radio, in the front window of 4ZA Radio in Don Street, Nivikagel. In and what they decided they were going to do was do some weaving. Now, I was, I was a wee bit of a young upstart, and I said to, I said to my mother What, what the hell's this got to do with anything? What, What is sitting in the window of a radio station weaving? What's that going to achieve? And she said to me, She said, Boy, you've got to start somewhere. Now, in 1977, to sit in the front ra- window of 4ZA Radio and weave out in public to display those, um, those, those artifacts of, of Maori culture was brave enough. And she had that aspiration then, of, of, of the two cultures coming together, of finding that unique New Zealand culture that sits in the middle of all that. And for me, to be working on that stuff 40 years later, and to be honest, it is still aspirational, but things have changed. So for me, it's a, a continuation of that story.
2: The danger of aspirational, of course, is that you think, yeah, it's, it's like some fairyland
8: utopia but I think it's described as
2: aspirational in a good way.
8: Yes, yep, yep. And it is aspirational, and I think a lot of the stuff that we do has always been aspirational. You know, there's an aspirational conversation that's going around now around um, um, uh, compulsory te reo Maori language lessons within our schooling system. Now, for me, that is still aspirational. We're not going to get there anytime soon to have compulsory te lessons, learning a language within the, within schools but taking a step back from that, looking at the aspirational and that's where we need to be, that's where we need to end up, I, I mean you just have to look internationally to see the the, um, the rebirth, if I can use such a crude, crude word, of languages of, of, of Welsh, of, mm. of, of Gaelic languages mm-hmm. and how they're, they're starting to rise up and be accepted by those communities and embraced by communities in New Zealand we, we're still a wee bit behind with that so the teaching of the language per se um, as a compulsory subject within schools I think is still aspirational. However, um, I think we can all agree as New Zealanders there are certain words and phrases that we use that are of common usage. Mm. You know, the, the, the term kia ora, that the, the you know, the, the word fano, When we use those we all know what they mean. And we also all know that they only mean something here in New Zealand. So I think we can look at the aspirational and aim towards that, and think that's where we want to be heading. But I think also we need to to reflect on the achievable. And when I think about those, you know, the, the term achievable, I think about those things that are both relevant, relevant today, within this time frame, relevant to to industries, and relevant to um, to context, and those things that are applicable. So those things that we can actually use, the kia ora when we say hello to someone, the, the, you know, the, the, the whānau, the, the, just those simple terms. Um, so I think the space we are in New Zealand now is we're ready and willing to go to those achievable lengths of finding what is relevant and what is applicable and embedding those terms, those words, as a movement towards that aspiration.
2: Was Ron Bull before Queen talking about aspirational change and mixing aspirational with achievable and applicable into a third way of working together? He's about to submit his Masters of Professional Practice on that very subject. Well done, Ron. That is an achievement. Let's see what Will Watterson has to say about celebration chocolate, cocoa, sugar, that kind of thing. And some organisations, some councils, educational institutions, they're becoming fair trade organisations. That's right, yeah. What what's the
10: importance of those? Well, at the end of the day, um, uh, it, it, if you think strategically about fair trade and who are, who are the major procurers and purchasers of, of these kind of products – it's uh, it's people who sit in institutions like universities and workplaces um, and uh, order the tea and coffee for their staff and for their students and this kind of thing, and so by saying to a university, hey, we invite you to become a fair trade workplace or a fair trade university, and and this is what that means, and you have a wonderful story and layers of meaning to it, and we really celebrate it and we get it out into the media, but that means that you know thousands more cups of fair trade coffee and thousands more cups of fair trade tea are being purchased and consumed um, and that's making a really strong tangible impact for the producers um so the, the direct impact
2: but also the story that they're telling to their staff exactly, and students
10: exactly because you know by uh you know target university becoming a fair trade university and putting that stake in the ground other other universities going, oh maybe we should be fair trade university and you know it all adds to the to the university's manner and their and the what they're offering to their students I suppose
2: let's hear from one of those students representing a couple of years ago representing school strike for climate Zach Rudin Henry's friend Zach. Mm.
11: crisis on to people so people feel helpless in that situation like they feel like okay I can do this and this but what's that actually doing?
2: So in some perverse way is that some great victory by the fossil fuel companies of making you feel guilty?
11: Yeah I'd say it is Um, and I'm I'm saddened to see even the own New Zealand government kind of backing that to some extent at least But in
2: terms of that mass mobilisation maybe we don't need to convince everybody Mm. maybe we just need to get on with having
11: a better life Mm. Uh, you bought an electric bike I did, yeah that's cool <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic mode of transport yeah, for sure yeah, great substitute for a car my best investment by far <laughs> so
2: should we be celebrating that?
11: Um, I I don't think there's to be honest Um, not to bring the mood down or anything but I, I don't think there's um any cause for celebration as things currently stand. I mean just the state of the world with the Australian bushfires which burned around 16 million hectares already um, and in comparison that the, the Amazonian rainforest which uh, became vile for its burning um, that was around 1 million hectares um, and just seeing more and more unprecedented uh, extreme weather events and more and more politicians coming into power who don't uh, who who are, who are climate deniers and um and who aren't prepared to enact uh, proper policy to address the issue um it's it's caused me um i think individually to think that this this is something that can't be solved not only can it not be solved through our consumer choices but it can't be solved through um participation within the status quo and within our democracy, but actually it needs to be solved through massive public upheaval um, and putting the power into the hands of the people um, and then having essentially a revolution on a global scale is what it really comes down to at this stage. Hey, that's um, a big step up from taxes and carbon offsets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure it is. Um, but I think that is the necessary call to action um as it says because we are facing a crisis on a global scale i arguably um the biggest crisis we have ever faced as um as a species uh, and this transcends politics it transcends race it transcends religion um and it, it's it's indiscriminate of all people that being said also it um it is um it disproportionately affects communities um like as mentioned before indigenous communities and pacifica communities um and people um in lower economic statuses um in terms of uh flooding and coastal erosion and um all of these effects which which a lot of people are failing to realize yeah
2: that's the ever so cheerful zach rudin he really is ever so cheerful isn't he henry yeah yeah, he is attempting to bring the mood down but then getting quite excited about the glint of a revolution and exciting shane and i just by the fact that he cares and he's doing something about it maybe we should be making more of a celebration of that
9: And, um, you know, it pulls people together. That's the experience we've had in Christchurch and experience in Japan and stuff. that communities actually came together and and, mm. and uh, coalesced and, and dealt with the, the crisis. And we need to start thinking about how that's going to happen because the things that we're not going to run out of, we're not going to run out of um, ingenuity. We're not going to run out of um, social cohesiveness. We're not going to run out of, you know, things like, you know, people coming together and, and doing great things and creativity. We're not going to run out of those things. And, And that's what we need to focus. on. it's funny that they that they are focusing on this. You know, we must deal with the post-apocalyptic world where you know we're all like you know, know, fighting the cannibals off or whatever we're doing. It's strange. So, so yeah. yeah, But this is is, this is 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 going the other way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's It's, it's about building the community. Celebrate Mm. things that Mm. are. Yeah, you're you're building the community here, aren't you? Mm -hmm. You've taken a problem. This is a big problem. Let's create a community out of it and actually solve it. Mm -hmm. And. Is there a sense of community amongst the the businesses and, and the, uh, that are involved? Is there, is, does that happen?
1: Well, yeah, in Wellington and Auckland, I think mm. there is. Yeah, yeah. There, I know there's talk of actually having workshops and things that that they actually want to learn or um, you know expand their knowledge and actually getting the, the retailers together to do that um, joint learning. And, and who knows whether or not that will happen in Otago, but it is, is a possibility, um, yeah. Conscious Consumers actually has quite a, a number of growth strategies um, for the future because I think, um, you know, this really, it's going to take some time to build the momentum mm-hmm. but I think it is a really powerful way of connecting people to good businesses and, you know, one of the, the kind of three strategies of growth are looking at going all around all of New Zealand, so including mm-hmm. Southland and regions that um, aren't currently covered, um, also to look at other sectors so at the moment, as, as we talked about, it's only hospitality, but, um, there, there are other sectors that, um, could really use some kind of tool to help people decide what is a good product and what is not, because there is so much greenwash and, um, and, uh, you know, false advertising that goes, um, on a product. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, even the ability perhaps to take this internationally to other countries, because there is no, there is no, product like this or no service that um that kind of connects people in this way anywhere else in the world that we know of
9: (laughs) wow that's pretty impressive yeah i mean again this is you know innovation in the the face of like here's a challenge let's innovate and do something new and constructive and Mm. and innovative and this is is, i mean this is very, very clever this is brilliant
2: That is Megan Williams, who was then representing Conscious Consumers. She's moved on to other things now, I think, although Conscious Consumers is now known as Coco, I think. Um, She was talking about the ingenuity of people and that we should be celebrating that.
5: Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? the wind blows doesn't really... Matter. I see a little silhouette of a man. Scaramouche, Scaramouche will you do the bandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening me! Galileo, 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 bigamon! Magnifico! I'm just a poor boy and nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor family, sparing his life from this monstrosity. Easy come, easy go. You let me go. Bismillah. No, we will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let him go. Bismillah. We will not let you go. Let me go. We will not let you go. Let me go. We will not let you go. Let, you go. Never. Never never. let me go. Oh, no, 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 no. oh mamma mia, mamma mia, mamma mia, let me go, beause the devil put aside for me, for me, for me.
2: This is Tobias Daniel Meyer. And vice versa.
12: Um. Yes, you can. Um. the The paper I wrote there is um, the architecture of post post consumerism. So, um, thinking about something people are craving at the mo- at the moment is. Um, the The consumer consumerism sort of has gone away big company names that sort of appeared on the on the word map at some stage. We now find sort of almost a an an anti anti movement to that where we have craft beers um and we have um sort of regional cuisines that people are sort of celebrating. You have food shows that are actually engaging with that. There's a, there's a component to it where you would say it's not about um, a mass market. It's much more um, viable if you actually can connect with um, regional aspects that actually is meaningful to people. And people get a uh, highly debated word, authentic experiences, whatever that means. So the architecture of post-consumerism was basically uh, a search for strategies. Was an architecture that sort of caters for the uniqueness of a place rather than t- more of the same.
2: Uh, that was Tobias Daniel Meyer talking about. Or was he talking about post-consumer architecture? Uh, This is uh, Robert Costanza. Sustainable and desirable future, in a way that they can
13: relate to. That's been one of the most difficult parts of this process. You can describe this future, you know, future world uh, in a text narrative, you know, but uh, but really, I, I would like to be able to, you know, produce a virtual reality, you know, kind of world where people can here walk into this world. Uh, here's here are the alternatives you know which of these worlds do you really want to live in and let them sort of live in that world for for a while so it's maybe not predict the future but be able to project people into alternative futures that they can actually experience and then decide which
2: one they they like the best and i think that would help to build the uh, consensus for which world we really want to make robert costanza there famous for ecological economics let's have carl Hendrik Rabeur, who created Strategic Sustainability or the Natural Step.
13: Being perceived as nicer than other companies and so forth, that's where they are today. It's a very superficial idea. But when they understand that depth was in it for them, to understand sustainability better than competitors, then it's time to learn how to do it. So and those two are also intimately related related because if you understand what's in it for you and you begin to embark on a steep learning curve then you like it more and more and more and vice versa if you may understand in some stomach gut feeling way that there's something in it for me but you don't know how you do how to do it then you have a tendency to not like it so much uh, there is a very intimate relationship between being on a steep learning curve, uh, doing high fives and celebrating each new learning, and liking something. You know, uh, so there is a intimate relationship between uh, aspirations and, and passion on the one hand, and knowledge and competence on the other. Is it possible
2: for a business to actually meet those principles? Is it a theoretical possibility, or is it some sort of abstracted aspiration?
13: No, you you can do it in a very very hands-on concrete operational way and the easiest way of describing it is to use a model that most clever strategists in business use anyhow Uh, and it's called SWOT analysis, it means that you have an idea of where you want to be and then you do an assessment of today's strengths and weaknesses Those are the S and W in SWAT. So you assess today in relation to where you want to be with regard to strengths and weaknesses. And then uh, you look for opportunities and threats in the future because there are always opportunities uh, uh, when it comes to looking at that vision. But there are also some threats uh, with regard to various kinds of uh, optional strategies to arrive at it and you assess those as well. Now you have a setup of, of stuff today and some relevant stuff for tomorrow and then you outline your strategy. What we've done is very simple in this context. When you talk about where you want to be, your vision for the future, uh, we have put boundary conditions for sustainability on that, which, is, which makes complete sense. Why dreaming of any vision if it is not sustainable? Why would you try to design a vision for your company That cannot be. Uh, If you contribute to unsustainability at the global scale, you will be more and more and more punished and your time will run out. You will be hit by resource costs, uh, opportunity costs, uh, fire brigading when competitors grab hold of new market opportunities. You will be hit by lower and lower loyalty amongst your staff. You will lose talent wars because intelligent people do not want to work with you anymore. There are myriad of reasons why you should make your SWOT analysis linked to boundary conditions for sustainability. And we have gone through that in depth and shown this to business. And we haven't experienced once, not once, that an executive team, have disputed this logic saying, no, no, you are wrong. We are not losing more and more forests or we don't have any, we don't have an expansion of the human population or we don't have any impacts related to toxicity. They don't even try. Nor do they uh, try something idiotic like, but that particular disaster at the global level will leave us here in our organization completely unharmed or untouched. They don't even go down that track. The thing is that they have not previously been encountering a very tight strategic model by which they can hands-on use it in a SWOT-like context. We call that ABCD analysis. It's very hands-on and they understand it right away and they begin digging where they stand at that first two-hour understanding of the framework.
2: Can an industry such as an airline industry, can it be sustainable? Absolutely.
13: Absolutely. they all industries, mining industry, uh, arms industries, uh, or any industry, uh, can be uh, put at use for a gradual development towards sustainability by not trying to improve necessarily exactly what's going on today, but by envisioning what kind of human service is it that we provide. How could we provide that service in a much smarter way within boundary conditions of sustainability? And how can we stepwise move from where we are today until that future and earning money all the way? If you do that with the airline industry, which is your example, we can of course change fuels to be renewable. We can develop uh, Zeppelin uh, airships again when we are not in a, in a very big hurry. We can uh, use uh, the relatively energy requiring uh, airplanes that are run on renewable energy uh, maybe for more demanding issues uh, by, uh, uh, compete by understanding that each energy flow has to compete with other flows such as related to food or whatever. We already have airliners doing this kind of stuff. Boeing has been influenced by the FSSD and uh, if you look at the new type of airplanes they are developing uh, with much lower resistance uh, run on renewables how they are envisioning this is fantastic to see. And we have one airline here in Sweden as well developing uh, biofuels uh, and already mixing it into the fuels within end stage of not using petroleum at all uh, and eventually putting their business and use of sustainable development so any business can be changed uh, in that direction
2: so that is the creator of the strategic framework for sustainability also known as natural step framework Carl henrik who i talked to in his offices in stockholm we've been exploring sort of um, the celebration today because it's new year's eve so let's have a look at celebration we have listened to peter hayden dominic hess valentine cadu Ginty mcintosh heidi renata ron ball will watterson zach rudin megan williams tobias daniel meyer robert robert costanza and carl henrik we've been listening to queen and we're going out to another one bites the dust the dust. listening to sustainable lens regeneration on radio we have been celebrating celebration today i'm samuel mann and this is henry mann and we hope you enjoyed the show and that you have a very happy new year
1: Otago polytechnic we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do High-quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otago A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens.